Hello, and welcome back to the Sinobubble podcast. Before I launch into the episode, this is just a reminder that if you subscribe to updates on the Sinobubble website, you'll receive an email notifying you every time a new episode is released. The email will also contain an interesting story or historical fact about China, so I highly recommend it. All you have to do is go to sinobubble.com, click on the contact button, fill in the subscribe box with your name and email, and then wait to hear from me. Today is the first in three parts on the CCP's occupation of the periphery and the incorporation of Tibet, Xinjiang and Inner Mongolia into the People's Republic after 1949. We're starting with Tibet, which historically had the most controversies surrounding it from an international perspective. I remember seeing protests about the freedom of the Tibetan people on TV when I was young and seeing other things such as acts of self-immolation and that sort of thing. But I think in recent years, the people of Xinjiang have taken over as the focal point of international outcry about China's human rights record. In any case, we'll still start with Tibet, as it's a good introduction to how the CCP approached the question of the periphery and the idea of a unified China in general. When they were first thinking about how to define the new China, the CCP's original policy towards non-Han minority peoples in the farthest regions of the empire was that of self-rule. The original plan was that Tibet, Xinjiang and Mongolia, which at this point included Outer Mongolia, but we'll get there, that all of these places would be given full autonomy as part of a sort of federal system, and then would decide for themselves if they wanted to join in with the rest of mainland China. This thinking was derived from the Marxist-Leninist idea of national self-determination. In a piece entitled The Right of Nations to Self-Determination, Lenin wrote, quote, If we want to grasp the meaning of self-determination of nations, not by juggling with legal definitions or inventing abstract definitions, but by examining the historico-economic conditions of the national movements, we must inevitably reach the conclusion that the self-determination of nations means the political separation of these nations from alien national bodies and the formation of an independent national state. Later on, we shall see still other reasons why it would be wrong to interpret the right to self-determination as meaning anything but the right to existence as a separate state. Well, unfortunately for Tibet, that later on never arrived. In 1949, the CCP's very open-minded policy was quickly overthrown by a brand new policy of a unified socialist China that incorporated all of the five major nationalities of Han, Manchu, Mongolian, Hui Muslim and Tibetan under one banner. It should be pointed out that this was essentially the same plan that the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek had during the Nanjing era, once again demonstrating how the new communist regime maintained many of the continuities with the previous regime that it had promised to overthrow and replace in its entirety. It's also interesting that the CCP claims to be very anti-imperialist, but is quite happy to rely on the legacies of China's imperial past in order to assert their legitimacy in areas such as Tibet and Taiwan. But I digress. So before we get into all the whys and hows of communist reintegration plans, let's get a bit of background on the historical relationship between Tibet and China so that we can understand a bit better why China felt that they had the right to Tibet in the first place. Tibet has a long, rich history of its own, dating back to around the 6th century BC. But going into all of it here would be way too long. Even the books I skim-read on Tibetan culture took me all day to read. 
What I'll do instead is I'll just give a brief overview of Tibet so that you get a feel for the region, its culture, and its relationship with mainland China until the middle of the 20th century. There was a great unified Tibetan empire from the beginning of the 7th century, and it was also during this time that Buddhism rose to prominence in Tibet, a little earlier than it did in China proper, although there was initially a lot of resistance to the imposition of a foreign religion until about the 11th century. Tibet fell under Mongolian rule in the 13th and 14th centuries as part of the Yuan dynasty, which was also the main dynasty of pretty much all of East and Northeastern Asia proper, barring parts of Xinjiang province. So there was some historical precedent for China and Tibet being part of the same kingdom or empire, but that was under Mongolian rule, and Tibet was also administered separately to China, with most of the political power still lying with local leaders. In general, Tibet has always been very open to cultural influences from its neighbours. Obviously, Buddhism was inherited from India, and in general, Tibet has a long-standing relationship with China, mainly as a tributary state. Persia was also a big influence on Tibetan culture, especially in literature, and Persian was the commercial language of the region prior to the 17th century. But by the early modern period, Buddhism played the biggest role in the daily lives of most Tibetans, and there were many different rival sects of Buddhism that competed with each other for influence and power throughout the Tibetan region. It was in the 17th century that the Dalai Lama became such an important figure in Tibet, as the fifth Dalai Lama had essentially unified Tibet under both religious and secular rule. He also visited Beijing in 1653 to meet with the emperor of the recently established Qing dynasty, the last Chinese imperial dynasty. Although while the Chinese saw this as a sort of act of submission, the Tibetans didn't see it in quite the same way. That being said, the Qing did maintain quite a bit of influence over Tibetan affairs, including in the selection of the Dalai Lama's successor up until the 13th Dalai Lama. As an aside, the 14th Dalai Lama, who is the current Dalai Lama, Tenzin Gyatso, was approved by the central government of China in 1940, although the Tibetans still rejected any notion that the Chinese played a presiding role over the enthronement, which the Chinese government played up in their own press. Anyway, now we're moving into the 20th century, and this is where things start getting a bit more chaotic and compelling. By the late 19th century, the British imperial government in India had expanded aggressively in the Himalayan region, staking a claim over Tibet's neighbours such as Bhutan and allying with its long-standing rival of Nepal. The Chinese Qing Empire was in decline, not to mention under serious pressure from foreign powers, as discussed in the first few episodes of this podcast, and in the north, Tibet's Mongolian allies were also weakening. Tibet itself remained internally stable, however the British feared the imposition of Russia in the face of Chinese imperial decline. So, in 1904, they sent an expedition with the mission to establish diplomatic ties with the Tibetan government directly, and in order to resolve a border dispute between Sikkim in northeastern India and a part of southern Tibet. The Young Husband expedition quickly became a temporary military invasion, Although I'm still not sure why it wasn't just characterised as a military invasion from the beginning, because the army that was sent into Tibet was so well-equipped, and the Tibetan army so not well-equipped, how could it have been seen as anything else except for imposition? Especially as it basically began with a massacre. But, okay, fine, we're calling it an expedition. 
In any case, this diplomatic expedition reached Lhasa on August 3rd, only to find that the 13th Dalai Lama had fled to Outer Mongolia. Despite his absence, the British managed to pressure the Tibetan representatives into signing the Anglo-Tibetan Treaty of 1904, which allowed Britain trading rights in major commercial areas, forced Tibet to pay a huge indemnity to the British government, formalised the border between Sikkim and Tibet, and declared that Tibet was to have no relationship with other countries, essentially making it a British protectorate. The last point was mainly to prevent an increase in Russian influence in the region. Though later, in treaties with both China and Russia, Britain promised not to intervene in the internal affairs of Tibet and to only deal with Tibet indirectly through China while still maintaining the other benefits of trade and indemnity from the original treaty. However, China proved unwilling to uphold their end of the bargain. They had closed the India-Tibet border after 1910 and began pushing themselves deeper into Tibetan territory, especially along the borders of the British Empire. Things got even dicier after the fall of the Qing dynasty in 1911, and in 1913, China, Britain and Tibet met at a conference in Simla to try and figure out Tibet's political status in the face of China's declining military presence. The Simla Accord, signed in 1914, promised that Tibet would remain under Chinese suzerainty, but that Tibet would be independent in its political affairs, and it also defined all the borders and areas of influence for all three parties. China was not happy and did not sign the accord, and the British government pointed out that this new treaty clashed with the one signed with Russia in 1907, but then the First World War happened and then people just forgot about Tibet for a while. From what I can tell, in the interim period, while China fell into warlord chaos, that was when Tibet attempted to assert its own independence, sending letters and trade delegations to several countries, including Britain, and trying to get them to tacitly support the Tibetan government. The CCP did have some interaction with the Tibetan people during the Long March in the mid-1930s, which usually just led to armed clashes that Mao Zedong described as very bad and did nothing to ingratiate the party with the locals. Again, after this period, Tibet really wasn't at the forefront of the CCP's political plans until after reunification. In general, Tibet took the chaos of the civil war period as a chance to make a break from China and establish itself as an independent polity. In 1949, the Tibetans expelled the nationalist delegation in the country in order to avoid pissing off the communists and to retain autonomy. Now, I say all of this to say that the history of Sino-Tibetan relations is a turbulent one that features both allyship and also a desire to remain distant. It's clear that as we move forward through history, the desire for Tibetan independence grows stronger, and it's a sentiment that remains till today. As to why Tibetan people feel they should have independence from China, it's important to note that the Tibetan people see themselves not only culturally distinct from the Chinese, but also ethnically distinct. An article published in Pacific Affairs in 1960, titled The Tibetan Self-Image, relates a conversation with the eldest brother of the Dalai Lama on the central question of what it means to be Tibetan. He identifies not only culture, in which Tibetan Buddhism plays a huge part, but also language, eating customs, lineage or race, and geographical homogeneity, which also constitutes a sense of pride at living on the roof of the world. But, the author notes, the concept of nationalism or nationhood is conspicuous in its absence, 
reflecting the fact that in the past, the Tibetan people have often been politically divided. The author asks the question what it is to be Tibetan, in order to understand what exactly the Tibetans were resisting in Chinese rule. But in doing so, he also discovered a key factor that allowed the Chinese to gain secure control over Tibet and turn it into a province after 1949. So now back on to liberation. The CCP's switch from a policy of self-determination to that of national unity essentially involved a sleight of hand. Mao argued that China was actually a multi-ethnic state, just one with a very large Han majority, and in fact was composed of many different peoples. The total number of officially recognised nationalities or ethnic groups in China today is 56, with Tibetan people coming in at the ninth largest, with a roughly 0.5% share of the total population. Chinese people didn't just mean Han people, it meant anyone living in the territory of China. And Tibet was in the territory of China, or at least it was going to be. The CCP leadership even went as far as to circulate an internal memo that told party members to stop using the phrase self-determination and instead recognise that this language was just to win the minorities on side so that they would oppose the nationalists. But, and I quote, the situation today has changed fundamentally. The reactionary reign of the Nationalist Party has already been overthrown and the new China led by our party has been established. For the purpose of completing the great cause of unifying our country, and for opposing the plots by the imperialists and their lackeys to divide China's national unity, we should not emphasise this slogan on domestic nationality issues anymore, so as not to allow the imperialists and the reactionary elements among minority nationalities to use it to put us on the defensive. End quote. The CCP actually started planning the takeover of Tibet before the official founding of the PRC in October, mainly because they felt it would be a pretty clean and easy process. When the nationalists were on the brink of defeat in mid-1949, Mao advised Peng Dehuai to get ready to settle the Tibetan issue in the fall or winter of the next year. Apart from the inconveniences of difficult terrain and heavy religious influences, Asserting CCP rule in Tibet was seen as a much more straightforward process than that of Taiwan, which, as history has shown, turned out to be true. They took the expulsion of Chinese officials in 1949 as their cue to go on the offensive. The Tibetans had meant this move as a sign of neutrality, as the officials were nationalist, but the CCP instead portrayed the incident as the Brits, Americans and Indians trying to increase their own influence in Tibet by getting rid of Chinese influence. In an official news statement, the party said, quote, The PLA must liberate all China's territories, including Tibet, Xinjiang, Hainan Island and Taiwan, and will never allow a single inch of Chinese land to be left beyond the rule of the People's Republic of China. Tibet is China's territory, and we will never allow it to be invaded by foreign forces. The Tibetan people are an integral part of the Chinese, and we will never allow them to be separated from the Chinese nation. End quote. The speedy recovery of Tibet was not just based on the need to have a fully unified China as quickly as possible as a show of China's legitimacy on the international stage, but the region was also of strategic importance to China. As mentioned earlier, there were historically frequent clashes between the Tibetan people and their neighbours in countries such as Nepal and India. The CCP also felt that other nations such as Britain and America, and also Russia, but they couldn't really admit that, were trying to get their hands on Tibet. It was best to strike soon, before Tibet finally received the recognition from the international community that it was a sovereign state, 
as it had been trying to do since the beginning of the 20th century. Time was of the essence. A question that I keep running to as I write this episode is, what exactly did the CCP mean by the term liberation? I mean, apart from the audacity that they felt that they were some sort of heroes in this situation, we already know that the CCP has a bit of a saviour complex, but what exactly was it that they felt that Tibet needed liberating from? Mao emphasised the need to liberate all Chinese, including the ethnic minorities, from oppression, but I'm still trying to figure out who exactly was oppressing Tibet. Was it that he felt that without China, Tibet would basically fall into the hands of evil Western imperialists? This seems to be the most likely case, but the terminology is so vague and there doesn't seem to be anyone who just outright says what they mean by liberate. So I'm going with evil Westerners for now, but let me know if you come across any other explanations. Initial plans to enter Tibet from the northeast through Qinghai province were soon scuppered by those pesky terrain difficulties, as most of the road was covered in snow for the majority of the year. The task of speedy invasion was handed over to Deng Xiaoping, who was in charge of the Southwest Bureau and arranged for the army stationed there to take the whole of Tibet by September 1950. The plan was to launch forth in March, pop into Chamdo, which is in the southeastern area of Tibet, by May, occupy the area, sow divisions amongst the locals, stroll into Lhasa by June and be home in time for tea. The CCP also had control over the Panchen Lama at the time, who was a 12-year-old who had fled to Qinghai province because of disputes between his clique and the then Dalai Lama's clique, and they wanted to use him as a sort of figurehead when they were marching with the army into Tibet to show the legitimacy of the CCP. For those who don't know, the Panchen Lama is sort of a second-in-command to the Dalai Lama in terms of authority. Both the Dalai Lama and the Panchen Lama are responsible for finding each other's reincarnations, and so they're both figures of high political importance. The current Panchen Lama, as identified by the current Dalai Lama, was actually kidnapped by the Chinese government in 1995, and nobody has seen him since. It is believed that this is a way of the CCP exerting their control over the successions of the Dalai Lama so that they can have more political influence over the Tibetan religion and culture, which, as I mentioned, is a very key part of Tibetan people's self-identity. The young Panchen Lama, who actually would be 31 now, so just a couple of years older than me, is apparently a college graduate with a normal job, according to the CCP. They haven't actually provided any evidence for this statement though, so I guess we'll just have to take their word for it. Anyway, back to 1949. Before the military incursion, some diplomacy was tried out. The CCP sent a Buddhist monk, and also the brother of the Dalai Lama, to try and negotiate a peaceful surrender with the Tibetan government. But the leaders in Lhasa argued that there was nothing that they needed liberating from, and that Tibet had historically been a free and independent nation and would like to remain that way. Thank you very much. Shockingly, Beijing dismissed the Tibetan claims to independence, which led the government to seek support from Britain, India and the US. But they were all either not interested, or didn't want to jeopardise their budding relationship with the new regime in China. The CCP were willing to recognise the cultural, political and religious systems of the Tibetan people, including the role of the Dalai Lama, if they in turn promised to get rid of all Western imperial influences and allow the People's Liberation Army into Tibet without resistance. Otherwise, the CCP would march in guns blazing. 
The Chinese invited a Tibetan delegation to Beijing in May of 1950 to discuss the terms of Tibetan autonomy, but the Tibetans, who were at that time in New Delhi, hesitated and basically just refused to go to Beijing. A weird back and forth ensued, and in September, the Chinese government basically issued an ultimatum stating that if the Tibetans didn't come to Beijing, then, you know, or else. When they didn't show up, the PLA took its cue. The invasion of Chamdo began on October 6, 1950. Unable to put up any resistance due to their outdated equipment and a vastly superior PLA force, the fighting lasted for two weeks, after which the Tibetans in Chamdo surrendered. On November 10th, the CCP reiterated that there was still time for a peaceful surrender from Lhasa, but the Tibetans were divided, knowing that they couldn't resist the incursion but also refusing to give up. They reached out to the international community one more time, pleading with the UN to halt Chinese aggression, but to no avail. The Indian government did express concern and regret over Chinese actions, but Beijing dismissed these concerns, stating that the CCP could go into whatever part of Tibet it liked and that India should not interfere in China's internal affairs. Seeing that they were to receive no help, the Tibetans decided to join the CCP at the negotiating table in Beijing on April 29, 1951. The Dalai Lama did not attend, instead leaving Tibet's highest-ranking military leader, Ngabo, in charge of the discussions. They quickly agreed to let the PLA into Tibet, and, after some back and forth, finally got the Dalai Lama to agree to recognise the Panchen Lama as designated by the CCP. On May 23rd, both parties signed the 17-point agreement for the peaceful liberation of Tibet, which stated that Tibet was to return to China and that reforms in Tibet would not take place until the people of Tibet had been consulted and agreed to the changes. Apart from the major points, two secret agreements also stated that Chinese troops would be stationed in areas of national defence in Tibet, that the Tibetan army would be demobilised and absorbed into the PLA, and that the Dalai Lama, currently in exile, could live wherever he liked, including Lhasa. The agreement was confirmed by the Dalai Lama on October 26th, the last seal of approval needed to confirm the handover of Tibet. So that's the story, really. In the end, the liberation of Tibet ended with little conflict, though the whole process took a little longer than the CCP would have liked. The final agreement was heavily weighted in Beijing's favour, as the clauses that applied to the CCP's abilities to change cultural and religious practices were conditional on the approval of the people, which, as we know, doesn't really mean anything. The agreement was repudiated by the Dalai Lama on his journey into exile to India in 1959. Until 1959, however, the Tibetan people were, generally speaking, allowed to get on with their lives in peace. When unrest started breaking out in the mid-1950s, however, it quickly spelled the end for peaceful coexistence and signalled the beginning of the saga that we know today, one in which the Tibetan people are sealed off from the rest of the world and the people live in the same oppressive conditions that the CCP promised to liberate them from. So, that's it for this episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. Just one more reminder that you can subscribe to the newsletter on the Sinobabble website, that's sinobabble.com, in order to receive updates on when the podcast will be released, as well as a fun story or article that I find on China. Okay, thanks for listening, guys, and I hope you tune in next time.